Welcome to the Eucatastrophe. Thanks for joining us as we meander through politics, pop culture, church, society to consider true human ends and how life, well, how life may be enchanted. I'm joined here by my outlaw friend, David, who, as we learned last week, takes children to casinos. (laughs) They weren't children. David, David, you're on record. One of your friends is a cop. And uh, I'm I'm telling him. I am telling on you, David. <laughs> At least this is not the whole Dave's a misogynist line that we usually go down. <laughs> well, I'm sure you could link casinos and misogyny pretty easy. Yeah. Okay, so my friend David, as I just mentioned, he is my friend. Um, and on Facebook this week, we we celebrated our Facebook friendship. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> there were like balloons and generic numbers, and it said we're part of three groups, and I couldn't think for the life of me what they are, so maybe we're part of some secret cabals. Hmm. Who knows? But then it comes up with one photo. They choose one photo to symbolize our friendship, and it was a photo of garden gnomes yeah. with the phrase communists. <laughs> it was amazing. It was just a series of like bronze, <laughs> like mildewy bronze garden gnomes. All holding like trowels. And and- yeah, and you've just said communists. Yeah. I cannot for the life of me <laughs> remember what the context well, well, you know, I'm just telling, I just, as people know, they've been listening to this podcast and I tell it like it is. I'm a truth teller. I'm like the Theresius of this podcast, you know, I'm just like prophetic all over this. So, and it makes me think hmm. because pretty soon after this episode, Dave is going to Tasmania mm-hmm. and just to continue with the communism theme, mm. he is going to Tasmania in order to promote cultural Marxism. This is true. Um, because that's, you know, <laughs> um, what Dave does these days. He goes yeah. around promoting cultural Marxism. We tried um, talking about cultural Marxism once. People kept on talking about it. Obviously we weren't successful. So David's doing so again. And, and the question really, Dave, is because of this, are you right in the heart? Um. I will be when I finally destroyed the family, <laughs> uh, which is what I'm trying to do by yeah. advocating for cultural Marxism. Yeah. 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 Um, Universities, families. Yeah. Um, yeah. Probably the state. Um, the state. Uh, the state should only exist really um, to f- force the radical gay sex agenda. I think so. Uh, on, on everyone else. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, um, we're talking about sacrifice zones. So, <laughs> <laughs> our best segue ever. <laughs> Smooth. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about sacrifice zones today, and David is going to, he's um, the one who's in the know, so he's going to introduce us to the topic. So, this is kind of a follow up to our, strangely enough, um, a follow up to our last episode. And I, I'm going to call this two part series something like uh, an experiment in. Uh, uh, Theological geopolitics or theogeography. Oh, <laughs> strapping. Uh, you know, I, uh, I studied critical theory, so uh, mashing words together is basically the end game. Uh, call back to... And yet, ironically, every time you say end game in an email, you put it as two words. When it's one word, David, it's one word. Sure, it's hyphenated. Right? No, it's not. It's one word. It's end game. Oh, and you right. get it wrong every time and it annoys me to no end. Well, uh, theogeography, the- <laughs> the- what I mean by that is we are spending a couple of episodes thinking about um, 
how we could theologically reflect on the use of space and place, the or, the orientation of uh, space in our contemporary world, um, and also uh, how we could kind of use theological imagination to critique the way that we organise space. And one of the most kind of horrendous uh, uses of space that we can imagine uh, is this example of what's called a sacrifice zone. But what is a sacrifice zone? Um, so quite simply, a sacrifice zone is a place within a nation state. Sometimes there might be examples where uh, nation states create them outside themselves, but usually inside themselves where they've basically abandoned it. They've given it up to all sorts of forces. Um, the term actually was coined in the 1980s to describe a very specific phenomena to begin with. Um, during the 1950s and 60s, uh, with the rise of nuclear energy and the nuclear arms race, the United States kind of created countless um, nuclear reactors um, all over uh, the country. Unfortunately, these uh, sites were often built, um, especially the very early sites, were built without their redundancy in mind. Uh, so they were designed in such a way that they couldn't be easily dismantled. And indeed, by the time you get to the 1980s, you had all these um, decaying and decrepit nuclear sites uh, with no way of destroying them without filling the atmosphere with radioactive particles. Uh, and so they had no idea what to do with them. And the strategy that they ended up coming up with brilliantly, there was a, a few other actually very clever strategies for this, but one of the strategies that they had was to basically put up kilometres and kilometres of chain link fence um, for kilometres and kilometres around the the epicentre where the nuclear um, site was and to just abandon it. And the engineers in the um, the US Energy Department started calling the spaces within the fences sacrifice zones. That is, our strategy is just to create a void mm. uh, in our country that cannot be um, transgressed without poisoning yourself. Now, that the term uh, got kind of popularised in the 1980s after I think it was uh, an initial New York Times article about it. Uh, the concept got popularised and it started to be uh, used to talk about both fence line communities, so uh, inhabited areas around um, sites that had been abandoned to um, chemical exposure of different types. Uh, and so there were, uh, for example, communities around new, uh, um, arms manufacturing sites that got exposed to runoff, um, chemical runoff, and had their water supply and soil contaminated and children would get poisoned and get cancer and things and die. But then it, I, I, the, the term kind of expanded further yet to start talking about communities that were just built around polluting industrial sites, factories and the like that fill the air with, um, yeah, carbon pollution and things like that that would jeopardise the, the health of people. And so then this kind of ambiguity arose about when we talk about sacrifice zones, what are we talking about? Are we talking about land that's been abandoned over to disuse or are we talking about land where uh, actually populated areas where people are being sacrificed? Um, and that's how the term is used today. It's uh, used primarily to talk about areas where um, people's health is compromised by industry, particularly these days the fossil fuel industry. Um, so with the advent of things like fracking, uh, mountaintop removal mining, where people literally, uh, mining companies literally explode the tops off mountains to make it easier to access um, coal seams uh, in the centre of them or other minerals. Um, uh, 
and and there's kind of numerous health benefits to this. Now, there's all sorts of very very health benefits. <laughs> health benefits. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, like I think finding I, the dragon in the yeah. mountain, taking its heart. Well, Gwyneth and- Paltrow says that. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Um, but uh, uh, Naomi Klein has a beautiful summary of this uh, in her book, um, uh, This Changes Everything, Capitalism Versus the Climate. She, uh, so she uses this term um, uh, a few times throughout the book. And she talks about this intimate connection between the fossil fuel industry and the creation of these sacrificial places and sacrificial people. And she says this, she says, running an economy on energy sources that releases poisons as an unavoidable part of their extraction and refining has always required sacrifice zones, whole subsets of humanity categorised as less than fully human, which made their poisoning in the name of progress somehow acceptable. Um, and so here, here we see basically this is part of the structure of an economy based on fossil fuels is you, it requires places of sacrifice and people of sacrifice. Now the last thing I'll, I'll say um, uh, uh, during this ramble is there's another very interesting example of a sacrifice um, zone uh, in a more social sense of the term. So uh, writers like Chris Hedges um, talk about social sacrifice zones places where um, uh, the most common thing that's happened is a community will be based around a particular industry. That industry will become unviable and shut down and the community is left, but all of the money goes and there is no longer any money for basic infrastructure. So the police force is cut. Um, There's no uh, ability to maintain infrastructure like roads and things like that. So trees start growing up in the middle of roads. Mm. There's places in Detroit um, like this, uh, one of the examples of Camden and New Jersey in the state, in the states is like this, where we would talk of food deserts. Yeah, so places where you literally cannot access fresh food, and, and you can only access things like um, sugar and fat. Basically, mm. uh, that that's the idea of a food desert. But like one of the most kind of striking things uh, is the stories about uh, children being attacked in the middle of urban spaces by packs of wild dogs because because mum and dad have gotten up and left mm. and they couldn't afford to keep their dog anymore so they just leave them at home and this happens all over enough that it actually almost nature reclaims the place and so you have packs of wild animals um, that are, are reclaiming uh, these, you know, parts of Michigan in, in the United States. But we have examples of them here. We could think about um, remote Indigenous communities uh, and the, the social breakdown, which I think is... Um, uh, tied to, uh, there's a fascinating account that one person gives um, of uh, the displacement of an Indigenous community in uh, North uh, South Australia uh, that was abandoned to uh, nuclear testing called Maralinga, where they, the communities themselves are kind of uprooted because their place was going to be used as a nuclear test site. And then they're kind of plumped somewhere else uh, and said, oh, this space is as good as any. Uh, and then their their cultural ties to land breaks down, their whole social structure breaks down, and then you create these kind of social sacrifice zones mm. um, where the law only presents itself in this kind of absence. Uh, uh, and so you have a link between two. Okay. So, let's so that's, just, that's let's, the basic idea of a that sacrifice. La- that, let's unpack that idea there that you just mentioned, the law presents itself in its absence, I think is really fertile and interesting. So... When I'm listening to you talking about sacrifice zones, I'm immediately put in mind of um, 
Carl Schmidt, mm. right, who's a uh, constitutional theorist of Weimar Germany and into um, uh, Nazi time and so on. And, mm. and he has this understanding that politics is fundamentally rooted in the friend-enemy distinction. Yes. In fact, being able to declare the friend-enemy distinction is the, is the basis for forming a state and the state is necessary to politics yeah. but that has an almost externality to it so schmidt does um does he doesn't much like the catholic church and uh, trade unions because mm. they uh, disperse people's loyalties mm. but it does have more of a sense of like the nation state defining itself and ultimately potentially through war yeah. if not through economic means and so on as to who is the enemy but what you're discussing is yeah. almost a, a a version of that that's been internalized yeah. in which what is um internalized is not so much it's the enemy there it's actually more like um the enemy that's outside of your borders it's yeah. actually something internal to yeah. you and so one way of thinking about a sacrifice zone is um, so if you take Schmidt's example of the the boundaries is actually what makes the state the the the, the boundaries that keeps the enemy the other outside. Mm. Um, in the instance of a sacrifice zone, somehow the state creates internal boundaries, these little pockets within itself where where it puts the other, it puts racial minorities, um, displaced, um, rootless. Um, sub-working class people, it places these people there and and withdraws itself and so it becomes almost a ceded territory um, that's given over. Um, so this is like, so to take Schmidt again, this is like saying that the state declares within itself yes. in a pocket an exception, yes, uh, a place in which it's not outside of law, what Schmidt calls the exception a borderline concept yeah. because it's it's both um, what constitutes law for Schmidt but also somewhat sits outside of it as a reserve, right? Yeah. So here what you're discussing is these people are not outside of law but they're being cast off to be, well, well they're, they're not... Um, they're not outside of the state, mm. but they've been cast off to be in some sense an almost like a lawless state. Yeah. And so um, a theorist that I like a lot, um, Giorgio Agamben, thinks about it, uh, thinks about law as having this acu- um, acute power to expose life, that is our physical, biological life, um, to the power of law precisely through the capacity of the law to remove itself Um to if you think about the example of someone's citizenship being stripped, for example, what does that do to the person? It it, it removes from them their legal and even moral significance, um, and then all of a sudden, the only way that law can uh, be experienced as as is is as this um, absence. And for Schmidt, the uh, for Schmidt for Gambin, the the kind of primary example to this that we could think of is the refugee camp. So this space that's created by a juridical political order, so if we, or we could think of Nauru, for example, we create these these spaces. They're in, they might be in, for example, another sovereign nation, but nonetheless are manifestations of our state's power. But, um, but they they are filled with people that are denied the possibility of belonging to a political community. Desire uh, deny possibility possibility of entering into a political community and becoming citizens. And so they, they're experiencing the force of law without being legal entities themselves. Yeah, well, that's precisely what it is actually. At law in Australia, mm-hmm. um, we have this, it's a legal, you could say a fiction, but it's it's just a point of law mm-hmm. that it's taken constitutionally that who is doing the detaining mm-hmm. of Nauru is the Nauruan yeah. government itself and not Australia and therefore... 
Um, you cannot claim that a person in Australia, there's this complicated jurisprudence about when you can claim the state is unlawfully detaining you mm. by exercising judicial power. Um, now, for a citizen, the quintessential point is the state can't detain you in, um, ordinarily for things, you know, the central case is you've committed a crime. Mm. Uh, but here what we have in, in Nauru is... In theory, we say it's actually another state doing it, but entirely it's at the power and the authority and the financial resourcing and the people power and the and also, you know, the idea that Nauru is even a vassal state for Australia. Hmm. It's entirely done under the um, authority of Australia, yeah. right? So it's both within and without, yeah. right? It's, it's, it's outside of Australia, but actually it's encapsulated into itself. Yeah. And so it, it, it's a it's a fascinating kind of very basic idea. This idea that you know we usually think of when can we see the power of law? Um, we usually think of it in terms of the law. The power of the law is to apprehend and confine some way. Whereas Agamben says it's actually no. The power of the law is when the law says just removes itself from you, removes its protection, removes uh, removes its care for you. Um, and this is what I think sacrifice zones actually are. The law, the law kind of disappears all of a sudden and it creates a lawlessness. But precisely through creating that lawlessness, it's showing its power, its domination over you. Mm. Um, and this is, uh, he relates, Agamben relates this specifically to the state of exception. For Agamben, whatever law touches, um, whether it's through even things that we, we, it's very difficult for people to think of human rights as anything but a good thing. But for Agamben, he says, as soon as you say you have a right by virtue of the fact that you are human, all of a sudden that enters into what he calls a relationship of exception um, or a relationship to the exception where um, you can be deemed unhuman uh, by the law, hmm. uh, that an exception to that can be declared. And at the same time he does a, a thorough historical analysis of this in the example of, of Nazi Germany you can actually be deemed as life not worthy of life. So you're no, you're no longer, you no longer fall into the category of human that human rights are there to protect. Um, and well, th an, this is his concern yeah. is that um, the more that we seek to protect things through enshrining them with law, the more you expose that to the vulnerability of the law withdrawing itself. Mm. There has an almost that, well, I don't know, he may be, treats us explicitly there's an echo there of how indigenous persons treated it international mm. law right um the idea that colonizers turned up here and said that they fall under the category of flora and fauna yeah, so there's a legal absolutely. categorization yeah. of exclusion that yeah. takes place but i or, or the the jewish person in in right. um in right in Nazi germany but i think you know it sounds like as well you're touching on a sort of a dynamic that's um we, we could take a more critical uh, perspective on liberal state itself mm in which there is a contractarian mode of people. Mm. Uh, rights uh, belong in, entirely in ways they're invested entirely into this one body, the state, who mm. then distributes it back to people, right? And so, and it distributes them back to it in order to further and protect their liberties perhaps. Mm. But that actually also gives the state an absolute control mm. over the bodies of people to ensure that some form of liberty exists. So we see this in surveillance, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, total surveillance across society is consistent in one way with people's liberty yeah. because you're attempting to ensure that people can get on with their own interests or whatever. Yeah. 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 Um, absolutely. And I, I think it, it, um, uh, picking up on this kind of theme of, of the relationship of indigenous, um, people 
to colonial states. Um, uh, I think one of the ways in which this kind of state's capacity to kind of strip um, both both life and place of its significance, um, you know, for those playing at home, uh, Agamben refers to this dynamic as homo sacer, homo sacer being a, a figure of Roman law that is, it's this strange curse that's put upon people that says they may be killed but not sacrificed. Uh, sacrificed. That is, that um, for all, it's it's basically a battle royale declared on one individual. Any citizen is allowed to kill this person at will, but they're not allowed to be sacrificed. What does that mean? It means their legal and their religious identity has been removed, the mm. possibility of having one of those things. And this, uh, this is something I actually argued in a piece of writing, is that this is precisely what we do with uh, what colonial states do with Indigenous peoples. Uh, they do it both to the people by by putting them outside of the moral community of humanity by doing the all sorts of atrocious things to them. But they also do it to um, their places. Uh, the, the, the colonial legal order comes and attempts to supersede all pre-existing legal orders um, to it and in doing so strips sites of their um, historical spiritual significance. It... Um, desacralizes them. Mm. Um, and so we can think of this, and this is what I think ties the previous episode to this one, is, you know, we, we can think of places like um, uh, the 850-year-old birthing trees that, where generations of Indigenous women have given birth that is, is uh, being demolished to make way for a highway. That is the example, I think that is an example of the creation of a uh, sacrifice zone, the desacralization of space or the the imposition of maybe it's too much to even call it a legal um, order on it, but it's certainly an economic order is being well, imposed. It on actually it. does get explicitly economic. So there's a very important case that came out of the High Court recently in which they're trying to quantify these sorts of non-economic losses, mm. right? Losses of one's customary spiritual connections to yeah. land and so on. And it's a very obviously how do you So do what's this? the fair price to what's pay? What's the fair for price, right? Are we have no constitution. The land of its- yeah. We have a just terms of compensation yes. question and, and some judges have suggested that just terms may not be just simply about finance finances, but may include the necessity for cooperative relationships of responsibility and these sorts of things. But mm. this is still all in the context of you know, you were trying to find a commensurate measure hmm. for eliminating these people's land and their customary relationship to it. Yes. Um, uh, and and I think this is, you know, this is one of these things that makes me kind of deeply cynical um, about the nature of law uh, generally in that it seems that, especially in colonial contexts, there's, there's this sense in which law itself is is this almost... Um, negative presence in the fact that it negates pre- prior legal political orders. Um, uh, it displaces and, and imposes itself over them. Um, and then at the, uh, once it's done that, then goes away. Mm. Uh, it, it removes itself from uh, particular places. So for all intensive purposes, uh, an already colonised people then don't even get the benefits associated with being a member of a colonial state, mm. that their, their utilities are cut off, um, their basic welfare is limited yeah, and things like that. Much time they didn't vote. Uh, yes, yeah, uh, that, uh, and, and that's exactly right. 
So basically, that's probably why I'm as depressed as I am. Well, there's, <laughs> okay, so there's a, there's a couple of things there. One is about law itself. And that just as a point makes me think of St. Paul's um, comments on law, right? And St. Mm. Paul in some ways almost thinks of law as semi-malicious um, because it's dealing with scarcity or um, competitive disorder. Mm. Um, and... And so you could think, for example, what you're describing as a sacrifice zone in ways arises because some people are trying to accumulate more yeah. or they're trying to uh, secure their own order, yeah. right, in which they're propertied, in which yeah. they are gaining resources, in which they're accumulating money and so on. Yeah. Um, and so law is used in a way to... Um, to secure that, yes. right, and to create boundaries. Yeah. And it has a semi-malicious element to that. Um, and that that makes me think then of, well, you, you've talked about Indigenous societies and so on, but it almost, you just, and a sacrifice zone almost just does have that geographic element to this. And so does this, what I'm about to say. But um, we talked last week about um, how you can have this clear demarcation in our society with certain workers mm. themselves are kind of treated in a, undignified way as a subclass to yeah. serve others, yeah. right? And that seems to be almost like a form of sacrifice in yeah. ways that it's that my liberty depends yeah. upon the extension of my liberty, the fulfillment of my infinite desire yeah. depends upon there being an underclass. Yeah, that's right. And so um, last episode we talked a bit about how the creation of non-places um, is partly fed by the growth economy, that a, com, a, a economy based on infinite growth requires constant destruction, destruction and recreation in order to feed the economy. And sacrifice zones, um, especially kind of industrial sacrifice zones and sometimes social sacrifice zones as well, exist because as a necessary feature of consumerism. That is, if we are going to keep producing goods that pollute um, that burn fossil fuels to create that put carbon into the atmosphere. That's going to require spaces um, uh, of industry, but then there's also also going to require spaces to put the waste mm. that's produced. Um, and so, one way to think about this um, is that why why are we told? What is the impulse behind our consumption uh, frequently? So often it is this myth of scarcity, right? The, the fact that we need to um, acquire more, acquire more, acquire more, because there's not enough to go around. And if I don't get it now... We're in competition. We're, and we're in competition. The other thing is that we are told constantly that we can construct an identity through our patterns of consumption, that um, I am the type of phone that I have. I am the, the type of house that I have. I am um, any number... Insert your consumer preference here. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to actually secure for myself a sense of self through my patterns of consumption. But... But that that identity formation through capitalism requires the sacrifice and the dehumanization of others. Mm. Um, and I, I think there's an analogy to be if we think back to um, um, the ancient Athenian city-state, we think of the aristocratic male citizen who got to construct their identity in the public sphere through aristocratic displays of great words and deeds. But their identity that they could construct for themselves required slaves and women that were um, confined to the obscurity of the household. And I think this is what sacrifice zones represent for us. They represent um, the capacity of myself as an affluent white um, 
person who can engage in identity formation through concept, consumption, but nonetheless that requires these people relegated to the darkness mm. um, of these these sacrifice zones mm. that requires their dehumanization so I can live a fully human life as it's constructed in um, our our culture. Yeah. So my the extension of my liberty understood in that manner mm. requires inhibiting another person's flourishing. Yes. You know, it's not just about inhibiting. But we, tell the, we, we, we can still justify that by saying that person's chosen, that migrant worker's chosen to come right, here. Right, right. Um, so it's not... They're not being constrained, really. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I'm. Well, again, but this is yeah. no, no. But this is this is a critical thought about critical of liberal, liberalism as well, is that it can be consistent with any form of bondage if you construct that as consent. Yes, that's right. Um, now, this is interesting. I think it's really interesting because you know you can think about something like Coca Cola, right? It just is destroys waterways through mm. their production. So, mm. from amongst uh, communities in which it is engaged, or iPhone production, mm. or there was this. Um, you know, uh, last year I think it was Beyonce got in trouble because it was discovered that this empowerment of woman figure yeah. was actually paying sixty four cents an hour to yeah. Sri Lankan slave workers. Yeah. You know, so but, but this is the nature of all work capitalism, right? right? It's um, and we we've talked we've I think we've talked about this numerous times. This idea that part of what what these woke companies are selling you is a sense of moral fulfillment, political agency, yeah. political identity. Um, all the while engaging in these kind of horrendous dehumanizing yeah. pra- practices, creating subsets of humanity that are deemed unworthy of full moral consideration. We can think about, you know, uh, we could li- go on and listen. Oh, uh, no, I think, um, uh, look, I'll, I'll throw out a little point of controversy on this one. Like, <laughs> it is amazing in the past few weeks when we've had all this Israel Falau controversy mm. that Qantas is held up as some moral arbiter, a yeah. moral. Uh, exemplar, yeah. right? You know, because it's all about their sponsorship and so on. And Qantas is held up as this affirming company. Yeah. Fine, okay. But Qantas is also the company that has a what something billion dollar turnover, twenty five million dollars or something for its CEO that is engaged in huge disputes with its contract workers because yeah. it basically has almost zero hour contracts and these sorts of things. That is tries to demand its workers work for free on holidays in order to pitch in, you know, <laughs> this is not, this is not, you know, this is not exactly just and fair work. Right. Yeah. Um, I think there's a, look, we mentioned, um, well, maybe we should leave this for another time, but it's really interesting with St. Paul to think mm. when he talks about the law and the law actually producing the ban yeah. that is, um, uh, and then uh, that this actually is a reaction to things like scarcity and in contrast, if you look at his first letter to Corinthians, he grounds in different order on a resurrection life, mm. right? In which there is a hope, there is the sort of ballsy maneuver to yeah. say that we ground it upon the event that points to infinite plenitude. Yeah. That in fact, that resources in this and put in a resources sense, distributed distributed in a just way. Yeah. We don't have scarcity. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. there is no need to engage in sacrifice yeah. necessarily, but we've created this as an endemic yeah. part of our lives. Yeah. And I think there's this has deep kind of theology of atonement um, resonances for me. This idea that because we believe in the sufficient sacrifice of Christ, we don't require the sacrifice of others. And one of the ways um, in which we are kind of liberated um, is through our hope in the resurrection means that we, we don't actually need to follow the impulse to sacrifice others that I might live, um, that we can, af- we can even have radical solidarity 
um, with those who are most dehumanized because of our hope in the resurrection. So I think of the great saints of history that have chosen identification with those that have been um, put outside of human community. Think of um, Brother Damien um, in Molokai in Hawaii who went and joined a colony of people suffering from leprosy and became a, a, a person with leprosy himself. Um, because of his hope of the res- resurrection, he could join the people that have been pushed outside of law. Um, and, you know, I think that's a beautiful image of the way in which believing in Christ's atoning sacrifice kind of um, short circuits our impulse towards sacrificing others. Mm. Um, so right. on that no, cheery note. No, I just, I just had this one quote from... I can't not. I just have this one quote from Milbank where he says, you know, Paul insists that we can found a just community only on the basis of a wholly counterfactual invocation of an undying reality, right? This idea that um, we can endure suffering, as you're mentioning, because we hold fast to an undying life, that Mm. there is, in fact, something of infinite goodness that we can all share in that Mm. is not a scarce resource Mm. but actually consists in the just, just... can be found in the just distribution amongst ourselves, right? All right. Well, I'm sad. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) No, that was a beautiful way to finish. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, please uh, like us on Facebook. Um, you can find us by searching for The Catastrophe. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Uh, you can find us uh, at UCAT, that's E-U-C-A-T underscore podcast. Uh, please write us a review on whatever platform you listen to us. And, um, and look out for Dave's new cultural Marxism Tumblr. It'll <laughs> be coming to you soon. You know, yeah. all, all, all the cultural Marxism memes for all the kids I, these days. I've kind of put my Marxist uh, <laughs> flags balance really out there. <laughs> which, is, which is, we should, uh, because people may not know this, quite different to talking about supposed cultural Marxism. Yeah, yes, no, I, uh, anyway. Yes, it is. Um, Thank you so much for listening to us and we will hopefully join you again next week. Bye.